Welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. I'm Mitchell Wolf, and I'm here, as always, with Editor-in-Chief of Super Jump and my usual co-host on the show, James Burns. Hey, James, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. In fact, I, uh, I recently got a new pair of glasses, and that's like my favorite thing in the world because now I can see better again. Um, Sight is good. Sight is good. Yeah, um, sight's great. The, yeah. the way my, my eyesight works is that I get a pair of glasses and it works, and then just my eyes get tired of it. <laughs> my <laughs> my eyes sort of rely on it too hard or, or something like that, and then all of a sudden I need a new prescription. Uh, so I have that now, and I can actually see things again. Love that. Um, so if you're a longtime listener of the show, thank you for your patronage. If you're just finding us, if you could remember to subscribe to us on iTunes Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, as it's now called, or CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So, let's get into the Playtime Report. The Playtime Report is where we talk about what we've been playing since the last episode of the Super Jump podcast. And I'm looking at the, the, the games we've put on our list, and uh, for, for some of these things, I don't think we've actually changed what we've been playing since the last episode of the podcast, even though I see some things from your section that I'm very excited to hear about, but we'll save that. <laughs> um, so we finished up, or I finished up, or Rare finished up, more appropriately, the Sea of Thieves closed beta. Uh, just play that some more. We talked about uh, the Sea of Thieves closed beta in the last mid-jump. That was the focus of that mid-jump. So if you want some more information on that, Go back and listen to that episode, uh, but if you don't want to listen to that episode, I guess the, the takeaway is that there were some technical problems that occasionally got in the way pretty hard, but for the most part, Sea of Thieves is a great game, and I really, really enjoyed myself. It's an MMO like I've never played before, and I, I think it'll really surprise a lot of people when it comes out in March. Um, and also, I've finished Celeste, kind of. Kind I talked about... Celeste as something that I just got into like the uh, first few levels of last time, but now I've finished the main story and I've done a lot of extra stuff as well. I see that you've been playing Celeste too. Yeah, I'm. I'm probably now where you were at the last episode. I think I'm. I think I'm probably three levels in, roughly. Okay. Um, but loving it so far. It's it's fantastic. It's um, really tight. It is, and it's 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 got a really interesting way of. I mean, I mean, I'd heard about the narrative and the characters, and I thought going in, I sort of thought, oh yeah, you know, there'll probably be moments where the action pauses and you're talking to a character and stuff. But what I didn't expect was the way that the narrative is kind of just really naturally weaved through each level, and it seems to get better and better as you go. Um, it's it's just really gorgeous. It's beautifully written. The characters are fantastic. I'm I'm really thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, just you wait until I, uh, chapters five and six for <laughs> interesting narrative developments. It does some some things I don't think I've seen before in a platformer. Oh, wow. uh, in regards to just the story and the characters and stuff, pretty good. Cool. Um, so you you say you you finished the third chapter? No, I'm probably. Oh, I think I'm probably about halfway through. 
So I'm guessing. I want to talk about something that you may be like right about to find in the game. And I don't think it's a spoiler necessarily. But mm. did you know Celeste is a remake? No. So the original Celeste came out three years ago on a system called the Pico 8. The Pico 8 is a, um, it's a microcomputer from the 80s, a lot like the Commodore 64 or the ZX Spectrum or um, some earlier uh, Atari type things, um, except plot twist, no it wasn't, it just, it never existed, but someone invented the Pico 8 as something that you can develop for and they made an emulator for it even though it's emulating something that never existed in the first place yeah um and it's just really easy to develop for uh it has a like an in system sprite editor it's really cool um so celeste was a pico 8 game came out uh three years ago the matt thorson and noel berry two of the people that ended up making this game uh made that game over the course of like three days for a game jam and that game is inside celeste the 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 full game as a little easter egg that you find in the third chapter oh that's Um, awesome that's yeah i don't know if you found it yet but it's in there uh and you can play it in in its entirety um so when i got to that part of the chapter i i was like really confused of why this thing is called a pico 8 and then, like, when you play it for the first time, mm. uh, it it appears on your main menu. I'm, I'm sorry if someone would consider this a spoiler, but, like, the game did actually exist in real life. So, it's kind of just, like, one of those real-life spoilers. So, I don't know how, how to feel about <laughs> well, that. Well, you know, just consider it something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it is um, it hard to find? Like, is it a... Um, it, you know how with the the strawberries and stuff you've kind of got a like you can you can kind of play through a central path without worrying about that stuff is this something that every player will come across or do you have to really hunt for it so it's out of the way um you're not going to just see it naturally but um getting to it if you know where it is it's not like technically difficult to get to Mm. and even just in terms of like puzzling out where things are, um, there are much harder hidden objects in the game than this Pico 8 machine. So I, I would say most players are probably going to at least accidentally find this. Cool. Yeah. Um, but because I played this part of the game, because I, I saw the Pico 8 and what it was, I got really excited about it, looked it up, found out everything I just told you about it being a fake console modeled after the 80s microcomputers, um, and I I bought the software for Pico 8, and I've been developing. I, I'm trying to make a Pico 8 game right now. Oh, cool. Um, so I've been playing other Pico 8 games. There's a lot of them, and they're all, uh, pretty much all of them are free. I'm sure some of them are, are, are charged, and nothing against that, but it's just like, um, the way the Pico 8 works is when you compile your code into a game, this is really cool. When you compile your code into a game, um, because of the way it is, because of the, the, the way that it's a microcomputer and there's just not that much memory, a game can be at maximum like 16K or maybe 64K, a very small amount 
of yeah. memory. Uh, it exports it as a modified PNG file, so it's an image of a cartridge with your game's label printed on it. Oh, and that so is cool. the game. So I just need to give you that image. I just send that image to you, and now you have the full game. Like, all of the code, all of the the, the different sprites are saved into the data of that image file, even though you don't see them. It's so cool. Oh, wow. Um, that You've blown my mind, yeah. Mitchell. This is like... I wasn't expecting <laughs> this coming into episode three. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Season season two, episode three is the, the big turning point. So, yeah, yeah I've been yeah. developing a game. I've, I've try, I'm trying to uh, demake the boating controls in Sea of Thieves. Um, basically, I it, it's, like, really complicated to, to drive a boat in Sea of Thieves. You need to work the sails and the wheel and the cannon and the anchor and the maintenance on the ship and bailing water out of the ship. You need to do all of those different things. And even though I can't take, like, the MMO aspect of the game, I, I doubt that I could make a Pico game work online or anything like that. Mm. I think I can get the controls to work so you need to be constantly shifting between different parts of the ship that's so that's what i'm working on right now i'll uh, i'll give updates on my pursuit of doing that and my pursuit of making a pico 8 game um i yeah i need to practice my programming i i used to know a lot of programming and now i'm like slowly remembering it as i go through this (laughs) Uh, I think my, I think the extent of my programming was um, I, like everybody in my generation, did a little bit of Visual Basic in high school, and my we we had to make a game at one stage, and my game was the best I could muster was a game where um, a guy was crossing the street and you could run over him with a car. <laughs> and and he would get up and go back to where he started and you could run over him again um that that was the extent of my game so i was wow. on like the the carmageddon train before that like there was no controversy in the high school around this game there should have been i could have been the carmageddon dude before that game actually came out <laughs> <laughs> wow the the proto James yeah comes out yeah and he's a surprising character yeah that's right uh, actually speaking of Sea of Thieves I do have a question um and you might remember last year when I played Mario Odyssey at E three you asked me a really interesting question you were saying um after having played the demo was I more or less excited about the the actual game. Uh, oh, that is an interesting question. I'm so how smart. How do you? How do you? <laughs> how do you feel? I forgot now? I asked I, that. Because <laughs> I know you've been following. Like you're obviously a big rare fan, and and I know yeah. that you've been following this game for a long time. It's a big deal. Um, and you know, technical issues aside, because they'll obviously be fixed. One would hope. Um, how do you? What's your excitement level about the game now that you've had a bit more time with it? Um, so Sea of Thieves to me was a really, really big unknown because I didn't play in the, the alpha that a lot of my friends played in before the beta. Um, I did yep. play in a, an E3 demo of it from like E3 2006. 
sorry, 16, not six, <laughs> uh, <laughs> where the, the ship combat was pretty much ready to go, but everything that involved like you getting off the ship and adventuring and doing quests and anything like that, that was all gone. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't think that you could swim. I think if you fell in the water, you were just drowning immediately. Um, yeah. So it, it it was pretty much a big unknown. I I didn't know what to expect from the game. I know I knew that I knew what they had said about the game. I knew there were voyages to go on. I knew that you crewed up with other people. I knew that uh, the way you found other people in the game was a combination of light server MMO style stuff and um like animal crossing small server stuff um but as for like how everything worked and how to visualize it i didn't really have the vocabulary yet and now that i do i think like the highs of what it could have been are probably not there anymore but like i'm focusing in my expectations i'm very excited about it still it's like it's probably the thing i'm most excited about right now in terms of new game releases um i really i I hope you can get into it um on on uh, on pc the game on pc uh interacts with the game on xbox so it's it's cross-platform and everything like that uh i'd love to i'd love to take you and some other friends on a on a sailing voyage james when that comes out that that would be awesome i um my my xbox one is has pretty much been collecting dust other than playing a little bit of PUBG here and there um so i'm really looking forward to this and and part of it is like the actual sailing mechanics and everything look really really interesting to me i love the idea of it being slightly more complex in terms of different people managing different parts of the ship but it kind of reminds me of um, Zelda in one way, um, just in the sense that I can imagine you have these moments of kind of intensity and, you know, combat and that sort of thing. But I can imagine there are a lot of moments where you're just having fun exploring and kind of admiring the view. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can imagine being happy watching that those water physics for a very long time without getting bored. I, I don't think I've ever seen a game with water that looks that incredible. No, I, I, I can't think of one that I have either. And uh, apparently, I, I heard some 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 uh, talk about this. It's just the water from Connect Sports Rivals, the, the last game they made. But with like, I mean, they did some texture work on it and some physics work on it to make it better. But like, they already had that. And wow. no one seemed to care because it was connect sports rivals um but like wow that was around yeah um so yeah that's that's sea of thieves i see that you're uh you're still playing monster hunter world i've heard nothing but good things about it from especially from people new to the franchise so uh so that's exciting yeah it's uh i mean i'm i'm probably now nearly 30 hours in i think wow so I've definitely given it a good amount of time. It's, it, it definitely has the whole learning curve and everything, but I have to admit, I think that's been a little bit overstated. Um, the, the most challenging thing I've found about it is just, uh, and, and I know we're talking about this later, but it's just like 
how all of the menu systems work and, you know, how you access things and how you, um, you know, like how that's kind of tied to the game systems. Um, but the game is, is pretty good at kind of walking you through and um, opening up different game systems periodically. It doesn't kind of throw everything at you all at once. And there are a lot of elements to the game that you can pretty much ignore if you want to. It's You can kind of make make of it what you want. Um, and now that I'm a fair way into it, it's, it's really awesome. Like it, I still highly recommend it. Um, you definitely don't need to have played a previous, a previous, uh, monster hunter game. And it's the sort of game where the, it's definitely preferable to play it online, but the really nice thing is you don't need to kind of gather up a crew of people that you know so you, the matchmaking side of it actually works quite well and you don't really need audio and chat to be quite effective if that makes sense yeah um but you definitely as you kind of progress in the game you definitely i think do need the multiplayer like i mean unless i just totally suck which is a high possibility um no i've heard that the, i've heard that you need the multiplayer yeah. Yeah, as, as it gets more difficult, I, I feel like there are certain monsters that are clearly designed to be tackled by a group of players. Um, and luckily, the game handles that really well. So, yeah, it's awesome. Cool. Um, one last game we're going to talk about. I'm really excited to see that you've played this. I had no idea. Uh, James, <laughs> what's your last game? <laughs> what Remains of Edith Finch. Um, That's amazing. I, you did it you got there yeah look you know i told you i would it it just (laughs) takes a while sometimes (laughs) there were a few other things i had to i had to kind of clear the deck first um mind you i'm i'm playing this now at a similar rate to how i'm playing zelda in that i like i'll play for sort of 30 minutes and then stop for a while um you know and i might play it might just be like 30 or 40 minutes you know, each week or something like that. Um, but I mean, what can I say? Everything you've said about it um, completely rings true to me. It's, um, it's. I haven't played anything like this game before. It it feels like it's doing something wholly unique and different. And I was genuinely surprised at how sort of mechanically interesting the game is and i know you'd mentioned that but it was really good that you didn't go too much into spoiler territory because um i've it's really surprised me at every turn it's got kind of the best aspects of a narrative driven kind of walking simulator type game with these really really fascinating kind of context sensitive game mechanics so it feels like lots of different games rolled into one in a way that really comes together and makes sense. Um, so I'm I'm loving it, and I'm kind of happy to be taking it slow as well because I believe it's not a very long game if you just play it all the way through. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, it's um... well, I think it's definitely designed to be played through in one or maybe two sittings uh it's it's only about four hours i think maybe maybe a little longer depending on uh 
how fast you catch on to certain things mm. but but really not that long at all um i'm sorry wait <laughs> what, what was the, was there a question i'm i missed was there a question? oh no <laughs> I, I think i was just saying um it, my understanding is it's not a very long game and i know oh, yeah. probably yeah like probably most people do play through it in a couple of sittings i'm kind of doing my usual thing of juggling lots of different stuff at once which is not always the best way to experience a game but um but it's been no. good to kind of <laughs> I, been... I really i mean do what you want to do but i really would suggest you don't do that for this but it's i mean it's fine you're still doing well, it but yeah and and i think there are um there are certain logical points in the game where you can stop to take a breath and you know the game's obviously not sort of split into these hard chapters per se but you know there are there are kind of natural peaks and troughs i i would say um so yeah my thing with that is that um there are there are many family family members in the finch family that um mm. if you asked me to draw a family tree right now i would probably yeah. struggle with it maybe i could do it yeah if you asked me to draw a family tree like after i played it I could I could exactly do it for you. I could tell you exactly how everyone's related, um, mm. and I would just worry that if I was playing it piecemeal with like a little bit at a time, I would lose that immediacy. That like this thing is fresh in my memory, and right now I know how to use that memory in interpreting this story. Um, yeah. Still, though, I, I I don't think it's it's necessarily a wrong thing to do. Um, but going back to what you said about about how immersive the the mechanics are that's one of those things that i've been really frustrated about when i'm talking about this game to people because you can just say like oh this game's immersion is is crazy and they'll just like say oh okay whatever (laughs) you know like (laughs) that's thrown around so often that when something truly is like inventive in how it uses immersion it's impossible to convey that yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's certainly impossible to convey it without giving spoilers. That's mm-hmm. the real challenge because you can't... I mean, you know, the, the furthest I think I could go without giving spoilers, and this is still a very bad explanation, but the thing that really surprised me about the game is that if you if you put yourself in the place of the main protagonist, so, you know, it's obviously a first-person game, you know, this is a protagonist that is reading about um, other family members in the game, um, but the game kind of has this internal fourth wall breaking that happens with the mechanics, and it's not, it's kind of several layers deep. So there's kind of an, a funny inception quality to, yeah. to a lot of the chapters in the game that is really surprising. The way that that unfolds is very, very sort of interesting and unique. Um, but yeah, it's it's very difficult to convey without just explicitly saying what happens. Because um, it's easy but, to think that you know what this game's about. Like you've played yeah, Gone Home yeah. and you know what Gone Home is. And it looks a lot like Gone Home. And if you explain what happens in the game, it sounds a lot like Gone Home. Yeah. But it's, it isn't. Like it's Except, not Gone Home. 
yeah, it's like gone home except not at all. It's uh, and, yeah, and even even that was a big surprise because it definitely kind of begins in a way that feels reminiscent of Gone Home, but you very quickly realize that you're playing something that is, at least for me, felt like it was kind of carving out this completely new territory. Um, I, I can't think of another game that's doing the same things that this one does. So, you know, to, to anyone listening that hasn't played it, um, I would say whether or not you're interested in Gone Home, just put that out of your mind. This, this is an experience worth playing in and of itself. So that's been our Playtime Report. Uh, thank you, James. We're going to move on to our newsy nibble. So here's the newsy nibble, James. You hear about this? Billy Mitchell and Todd Rogers, notable Twin Galaxies record holders, and uh, by extension, Guinness Book of World Records record holders, because Twin Galaxies is associated with uh, with Guinness, uh, have had their records revoked. Um, in the case of Todd Rogers, it looks like all of his records have been revoked, and in the case of Billy Mitchell, it's just his... Uh, just his Donkey Kong arcade records for now, but I'm sure there are some other things that are being investigated in the meantime. Here's the details. Here's the juicy goose. Um, the oldest world record in the Guinness Book of World Records for video games. Can you guess what it is? Donkey Kong? <laughs> no, it is not. It is, uh, uh, it is Todd Rogers' score of... 5.51 seconds for Dragster, which is an Activision Atari game. Um, now so, I have to ask you, yeah. I, I don't know if the listeners will hear this the same way I did. Did you say Todd Rogers or Odd Rogers? Todd with a T? Because <laughs> it came through as Odd Rogers, and I thought you oh, were okay. doing some really <laughs> weird pun. But no, anyway, sorry, continue. Us Americans are really <laughs> bad with our T's, but... Uh, <laughs> So Todd Rogers got that score back in 1982, and mm. people have been playing this game on and off. I mean, not so much recently, a lot, but it's existed since 1982, and people have been trying to beat that uh, record. Todd Rogers has not been dethroned. So mm. someone looked up that that record, someone who uh, I assume just knew a lot about the game Dragster for Atari 2600, and they, they said, that's a little sketchy. And they looked at the game's code and broke down frame by frame what can happen in the game to get the most optimal score, which I imagine had to be an endeavor of programming and emulation in order to find out if that was possible. Um, and they found out that 5.56 seconds is actually the fastest you can get in Dragster. Uh, Todd Rogers' score of 5.51 seconds was impossible. Um, and there are some other Todd Rogers things that they looked into after this where they found out, like, oh, this record that he says he has, he only had proof of from, like, a photograph that he said he sent into a company that no one has records of that photograph anymore and no one's ever seen it. And yeah. a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, his name has been tarnished. So Billy Mitchell. Uh, Billy Mitchell is probably the most famous arcade 
high score guy in existence. Have you heard of him before? I have, um, but I didn't really know much of his... I didn't really know much of the detail around him until I'd started reading up on him a little bit for this episode. Um, very interesting character. There's yeah, a, <laughs> There's like a whole lore and legend around this guy, which I didn't realize. Yeah, a really weird guy to share the Mitchell name. Uh, not sure I approve necessarily. <laughs> he was probably most famous for being uh, one of the focused people in in the documentary King of Kong. Sorry, documentary King of Kong, uh, where it's explained that he's the first Donkey Kong arcade player to reach one million points. Uh, except not really, because recently that video, um, and that was in the era when Twin Galaxies still requested, not too long ago, but this was something Twin Galaxies did, they requested that all high scores be sent in on VHS cassette. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, we're not talking about like 90s or anything, we're talking about like 2008 and (laughs) 9. Um, I, I remember doing this because I was a world record holder for Twin Galaxies for a little bit. I had some some uh, world records in We Play uh, back in the day. They were oh, immediately... Cool. Um, I was immediately just, uh, just kicked out of that place because I only sent in video of me playing We Play because I realized that other people hadn't tried this game in a in a in a competitive <laughs> sense so anything i yeah. sent in was just like automatically the first thing they received and the best in the world but i i still have uh i still have fond memories of that and i like to tell people you know i was a, I was a world record holder back in the day <laughs> yeah yeah you just have to end the sentence there <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh but billy Mick, uh billy mitchell his video of his one million points uh, famous DK run was proven to be done on MAME, which stands for Multiple Arcade Machine Emulator. Um, mm-hmm. And Billy Mitchell went silent on this for like a week or so, and then he finally came out again. Someone, uh, a, a games reporter who I unfortunately don't remember the name of, asked him, so what's up? Do, do you... Do you admit to this? Is is this a misunderstanding? And Billy Mitchell said, uh, "Well, if you look at the analysis done on the video, it does indeed seem to be performed on Mame." And that's it. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't say like, "You got me," or "No, this isn't true." It's just like, "Hmm, yeah, I guess you would think that." <laughs> oh, okay, that's interesting. What a weird take. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Do you know that when he gave that answer, do you know when that was? That was uh that was within the last two weeks. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't remember exactly. I don't have it in front of me, otherwise I would um well, give the publication that was with. The only reason I say that is because um the I noticed an article uh and it's dated as Feb 9th on GameSpot where uh they did a <clears throat> they did a phone interview or a, or a Skype interview um with Billy and it was like the plot thickens so oh yeah he he now claims that the footage um 
there may be a technical explanation for the footage looking like MAME when it's actually not. Um, he says, and he hasn't said who these experts are, he says he's quote-unquote consulted with experts who explained to him how the the visual look of the arcade footage could appear altered because it was direct feed, i.e. taken from the arcade board itself, versus being taken from the monitor. Hmm. And what he's now saying is that he intends to try and clear his name. Um, okay. Now, I, I don't know... I guess that the question is... Like, I was reading this and thinking, okay, well... You know, the first question is how, what evidence could he bring to bear for this, um, you know, to, to clear his name in a way that would satisfy the critics? Because it seems as though that a lot of the people that have kind of gone into the technical analysis to debunk his record... Um, you know, have obviously been putting a lot of energy into it. And my understanding is they've even made a couple of their own documentaries to counter the King of Kong. Um, oh, well, yeah. King of Kong is a very controversial documentary. There's a lot of, a lot of goings on in that film that uh, paint Billy Mitchell in a very villainous light. Whether or yeah. not he deserves that is, is up to interpretation, of course. Yeah, so there's, there's this kind of... Um, and I'm not into all of the detail of it, but there's this apparent kind of war going on uh, in terms of like claim and counterclaim. And it's really interesting to me because, as I say, I wonder what evidence he could he could provide that would be sufficient to, you know, to to prove that he actually did achieve this record. Um it almost feels like whatever he does, and I have no idea whether he's right or wrong, but it almost seems like whatever he does, it, there's just going to be this kind of ongoing uh, conflict and doubt about it, no matter what. Yeah. Um, uh, um, so the King of Kong movie set up a, a rivalry, whether one existed or not, uh, at least did in the fiction of the, doc- of the documentary, between Billy Mitchell and Steve Wiebe. Um, yes, and yep. Steve Wiebe would have been the first person to reach 1 million in Donkey Kong had it not been for Billy Mitchell because he was a I, I don't remember the exact order of events but basically he was about to do it or he did it just after this um, at, at a live in a live setting and then mm-hmm. Billy Mitchell who notably has always been promoting live score records live uh like show up to a bar do it live in their arcade um Mm. that's that's how he's done it in the past uh for this one thing for his passing one million he sent in a tape yeah um which is is weird for a number of reasons one he's the guy that said do it live so if he's sending in a tape that's like it's not evidence against him but it is just like dude don't be a dick about this yeah yeah. Uh, you're you're the one that said it uh and and two there is all this poss there's there's all this possible stuff about how you can fake videos so part of the uh part of the original 
forum post that uh, put people in the direction of thinking that Billy Mitchell did this on MAME. Um, by the way, him doing it on MAME doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't do it, but it also doesn't necessarily mean he did do it. That's the problem. Uh, if you yeah. do something on MAME, you could theoretically tass it. Um, you, you could tool assist speedrun it, uh, set up a series of inputs that you don't actually have to do in real time. It's a whole different thing. Um, mm. But a- according to that forum post, sprites in the arcade game um, basically fil- file in onto the screen one square at a time. Mm. Um starting in the upper left-hand corner, going down a column, and then starting in the next column over every frame. Uh, it reboots all of the sprites on the screen. Where in this video, it did it like a curtain. Uh, yeah. It was that whole left column, then one column over, then one column over. Um, so if Billy Mitchell is contending, and I haven't really looked into this, so I'm, I might be out of my death, depth. If he's contending that uh, the difference is that it was direct feed rather than from the monitor of the arcade machine, Mm -hmm. uh, he would have to prove that the game itself doesn't do that tiling in sprite filtering that, uh, by all accounts, does do in every arcade machine. So that'd that'd be weird, but I suppose there's a way around it for him. Yeah, and I think that that's the thing. It, it for me, it sort of comes back to that question of, like you know, he's made this this counterclaim now, but at the end of the day, he he has to have some way of proving it to the satisfaction of people who are, you know, technical enough to accept that explanation. I guess. Yeah, it's um, it's weird because Twin Galaxies did jump the gun. Uh, they did say, Billy Mitchell, you are not allowed to have this score anymore all of his donkey kong arcade scores have been removed um and guinness has also uh done this as well if he can if he can prove it that's that's like a whole thing because billy mitchell is a character in a lot of people's minds um in donkey kong country returns billy mitchell's famous american flag tie is in the game as uh like a rock a rock formation in the background of one of the stage uh stages yeah. as a just a fun little cameo it he means a lot of things to a lot of people now todd rogers he's just a fraud he's just like a regular old he didn't do this anything that he did is yeah impossible or just yeah. he totally unlikely um yeah so there's that um any any thoughts on Twin Galaxies as a whole, James? Have you heard uh, about them before this debacle? So, I I hadn't heard about Twin Galaxies specifically, but I I know just from my own kind of game experience growing up that um, the typical way that people you know, uh, put together leaderboards and that sort of thing, which, you know, leaderboards at one stage were just leaderboards in news, in, um, magazines. Um, the way that was done was always through, you know, sending photos that you'd taken, you know, mailing in photos or videos from captured from your TV. Um, and, and at one point in time that was probably fine, but, 
I was thinking about this earlier, like when it comes to, to any kind of record now, it seems to me that the only way you can really verify a record is if the player achieves that record in a very controlled setting that is controlled by a third party like Twin Galaxies, you know, where they provide the hardware, they provide the video capture, they provide the software, the whole thing. Um, I, I would have thought that now there's no way you can rely on any video or images that people send you because aside from the fact that those artifacts can be doctored after the fact and doctored very effectively, um, there are just so many ways now to mod games and to hack games that are very, very sophisticated. So, uh, you know, it seems to me that your ability to actually verify these records has to become much more kind of controlled and scientific. I, I wouldn't right. trust any other method, really. Well, part of it has always been a level of trust and intuition. Like for certain speedruns to be playing a modified version of the game that you had to mod yourself because if this mod was publicly available it would be a thing that speedrun people would know about uh mm. and would warn against it and find the signs that you're using it um that would be more work and just doubly doubly false you know like it, it, it would be something that you obviously put enough time in to get this time uh, but you didn't want to put the time in to actually work it out, so you, you made the mod instead. Um, so so part of it is just like on, on the, the basis of human compassion, barring the times when we can see that there is something up in the recording. Mm -hmm. um, YouTube and speedrun uh, speed archives or speedrunners archives have been the way in recent years to log your scores. Uh, they know how. They know how to check for like most of uh, most of the known mods or known ways to uh, to modify your your videos, and uh, especially if it was live streamed, you can't really do too much during a live stream. Uh, so I feel like in a lot of ways, the Twin Galaxies method of sending in a score and having it be approved by a bureau of people is just so old-fashioned uh, <laughs> and I, I don't know how how long they can keep up what they're doing I mean I, I assume because they were bought out by Guinness Book of World Records they have that kind of uh, financial backing even though I also don't know how well financially Guinness Book of World Records is doing um, just I, I don't know I don't I don't know wh where that kind of organization uh, would have a place in today's community of, of uh, people trying to do extraordinary things with gaming. Yeah. Especially yeah, if there's ways to prove that, like, Billy Mitchell and Todd Rogers were both very closely associated with Twin Galaxies. They were, like, friends of friends of, of the people. Um, I think both of them were judges at one point as well. So yeah. it, it's just so easy to see that, um, at least in this case, there was just this huge conflict of interest going on and uh, maybe the power to decide who has the highest score in, in certain games will always be corrupt in some ways and always have that conflict of interest. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I think it's 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 hard to see a better or a more effective alternative than those speed running communities you mentioned where this is kind of their this is their bread and butter. They have a very, very sophisticated understanding of specific games as well. So they're not kind of generalists. Um, I mean, some of them are yeah. a bit more generalist, but, you know, within the speedrunning community, there tends to be groups that are kind of centered around specific games and franchises, and they just, they know them so well. Uh, and as you said, you know, they know what, what mods and hacks and things to look for. So I, I can't imagine that there's much future for something like Twin Galaxies. Um at least in terms of being kind of a authoritative um, arbiter of this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, I feel kind of sad about it because I, I was really into reading up on all of the uh, all of the uh, the records in Twin Galaxies back in the day. And when King of Kong came out, I was really excited about that movie as well. But mm. um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if they're fresh enough to keep up with the times in this regard. Um, yeah i guess one thing that you can do and the speedrunning community already does this um is have things like agdq where people come out and they do their speedruns in in public environments where it would be impossible to mod or fake anything um and they don't hit their records but they do prove that they are at least within the uh within the realm of hitting their records you know they have the skill they have the talent they have the practice uh to do these things that doesn't necessarily mean that you're just you could be really good and still fake this thing which is what people are saying about billy mitchell because he's he's proven on on multiple occasions that he definitely has skills in arcade Mm. games so it's a weird thing okay it looks like we're gonna move on to buying a betty boop emblazoned choker necklace at hot topic This week's hot topic is game menus. James, I've been thinking a lot about game menus recently. Um, When you start up The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, one of the greatest games of our generation, TM, TM, um, (laughs) there is no start screen. There is no file select. Uh, You just jump straight into the game. Mm. Uh, As soon as you press uh, confirm on your Switch ui menu to go into zelda uh if you don't have a previously loaded save it just starts with that cutscene of zelda telling link to wake up Hmm. uh and i thought that was interesting and if i can be honest james i wasn't a fan i i like that (laughs) buffer a lot and i like everything that a start screen can do and that a file select screen can do uh and i missed those things and then when Super Mario Odyssey came out, it was the same thing. It just immediately started with that cutscene of Bowser uh, sailing over Princess Peach's castle, uh, fighting Mario on the bow of his ship. Yeah, yeah. So the, so like it's gone. <laughs> like the art of uh, of starting up a game with a start screen and a file select, like it's gone. It's just not around anymore. Yeah. It's around on other consoles, and it's around... I, I mean, like, indie games are doing it all the time. 
Celeste has a file select screen with three different files to choose from. But mm-hmm. um, I think people are just seeing the UI that game systems have now as replacing that start screen and uh, different, having different files or, or different profiles that you can go into a game with as a reason not to have a file select screen. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I um, so, so I'm not really bothered by the lack of a file select screen up front because uh, I think if you're if you're going to allow the functionality of having multiple files for one user's profile, a more elegant way to do it might be, and and some games do this where you just start the game, but when you actually want to go to save, at that point you can choose a place to save. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that side of it doesn't bother me too much. I think what bothers me more in that case is actually just the fact that Zelda didn't provide that facility. It didn't provide the ability for you to have multiple saves until you got to the point of, um, the DLC where you could play in, uh, what's it called? Um, in master mode. And even master, then yeah. that's a, that's like a necessarily different experience than just starting the game yeah. again. That's right, yeah. And and so I was a little bit... My issue there was probably more around the fact that there was a point in time where I wanted to have a couple of save files in Zelda without necessarily being in the master mode. And it annoyed me that the only way to do that was to create like a dummy profile on the Switch. That yeah. just felt annoying. Um, you can have multiple save files in Super Mario Odyssey under one profile but the way you do it is really strange um you you, it doesn't just give you like a file select as you know you have to uh you have to start the game and you have to go to data management in the menu and data Mm -hmm. management allows you to save multiple files against one switch user profile so it's, now maybe it's like, I'm, I'm off base, but isn't this the same system as in Breath of the Wild when you manually save the game in Breath of the Wild? There are like some drop down things you can pick from, but it's, I mean, the way that works, wouldn't those all have to be just different points in your play experience? You can't like start over from the beginning again. You can start over from the beginning again. You, oh, so okay. you can, yeah, you can actually have completely separate save files, but um the game it's really weird actually because the game provides that functionality but it doesn't call attention to it so you really have to know it's there and you have to like for example when you start a second file and you load the game up um you can't the game doesn't give you any ability right at the beginning to say which file do you want to load um it just continues from whichever one you were playing last if you want to load the other file, you have to go to data management and find the other save slot and, and pick that one up. Um, but it's it, as I said, it's not just an earlier point in the same game. It's actually a whole different file. Um, and the game never clearly articulates that. You Like, you know, if you were just playing it and you didn't actually look that up, I think most people probably wouldn't realize it's there. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I yeah, didn't know it was it's, there. It's, v- it's very hidden. 
Um, but I did that because I wanted to have two... Same thing, I wanted to have two files in Mario. I wonder if there was some sort of... Uh, like, like a study that Nintendo did where they looked to see how many people were actually using more than one save file and they found out that it just wasn't very many so they didn't support that anymore um yeah and i mean historically like the reason that you had multiple save files in something like super mario sunshine or sonic the hedgehog 3 was because the idea was that you had multiple people in the household playing the game and there was no concept at that stage of a user profile on a console. Right. So, you know, it was a per game save system. Whereas now I think I think their logic is, you know, each each family member has their own profile with their own save games and that's how we're going to arrange it. But Zelda in particular, I think, is a game that warrants multiple playthroughs because the experience can be so different each time. So it just I just sort of found it strange that they didn't provide that option to begin with. You know what else I find strange? This segue what? into a different <laughs> part of this discussion. I knew um, that was coming. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah, so there were a few... Um, if we're just talking about the design of menus themselves, uh, yeah. there, are, there are a few people who really design games with... with uh, even with their menus in mind, in just the design of the game feel. Um, but I, I, I can think of none more worthy of being talked about in this way than Masahiro Sakurai um, of the Super Smash Brothers and Kirby series. Um, in Super Smash Brothers Brawl, Masahiro Sakurai and uh, actually his wife specifically uh, designed the the menu for that game. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Sakurai's wife, Mrs. Sakurai, I assume, but I could be wrong about that, uh, designed the menu with different buttons being sized to represent, like, how much you should push them. Uh, Mm. Versus mode being the most likely thing you're going to do in Smash Brothers uh, has the biggest button on the screen. And, uh, like, options has the smallest this yeah. is really annoying for a lot of reasons, and I hate this, but uh, <laughs> I, I feel like we, we should give credit where credit is due. They were viewing this problem, the problem of, like, how do we make menus more accessible to people um, in a very human-centered design sort of way, which I can really get behind. They were, they were thinking, maybe the way that we've been doing things forever isn't, isn't quite natural enough. Uh, mm. Maybe we should... Uh, test this out and try to see if it, it'll fit better with the human psyche in the way that it interacts with com- with computers the problem is that it, it i think it is a net negative um the way the menu is in in so many ways doesn't work because mm. certain it, it's no longer like all of the one player stuff all of the two player stuff all of the options all of the trophies all of the things that could be considered their own uh, like larger categories are necessarily in those categories anymore. Now yeah. you kind of don't know where stuff is as much, and I think that's a problem. Um, and it's a problem that wasn't fixed when Sakurai made Kid Icarus Uprising, which uses the same style menu as Brawl, 
And then Super Smash Brothers for 3DS and Wii U also use the same menu. Um, yeah. That now that might just be a thing for me. Maybe that's just like something I can't get past, but other people love. I have I have no idea. I actually haven't like talked to too many people about this, uh, but I think it's a clear issue of it in this case at least style over substance which i'm sure is something that a lot of different games uh can have problems with um what what do you think about the menus in in brawl do you have any opinions on that one um you don't need to i'm weird (laughs) no, (laughs) no but i think you're i think you're speaking to something that that i find really interesting with and it's something i think about with menu designs in general which is there's there's an interesting tug of war between on the one hand crafting a menu design that is very specific to that game experience and that is going to work best for the functions you need to do in that game versus understanding that uh, for better or worse there are a number of I guess design conventions that have evolved over time Uh, that you know there are certain patterns that people are generally used to and an example it's such a small thing but one example i can think of is a lot of games when you start them up you'll be introduced to a menu that will allow you to either continue your last playthrough or jump into a new game right and you'll notice that most games the the option that's highlighted and the option that's sitting at the top is continue new game is usually subordinate to that unless there is no save file with which to continue and it always stands out to me when i play a game where i've played it before i've saved a game i come back in and start the game up and the first option that's highlighted is new game and i immediately click and accidentally start a new game instead of going to continue yeah now that's such a small thing but it's it's one of those cases i think where you know that's a fairly traditional sort of menu design and i think if you're going to go that way you need to really pay attention to kind of the common patterns that most people will be used to in some ways um, i imagine that it's a it's kind of a fight between making familiar things for people who are familiar with games and trying mm. to make things accessible to people who have not played games before. Uh, because any game could be someone's first game. And especially in the kinds of games that we've been talking about, like Nintendo games, um, mm. those appeal to children and a wider base of adults than normally. Uh, so they can they can kind of expect some people to be coming into games greener than, than most. They, they know less. Um but I, but still i think that like on a base level just a, a drop down menu at the start of the game and when you press pause where each option is categorized inside of a bigger set of categories is is smart and and good but uh even within that parameter they can be done in really uh obtuse ways for example yeah um Super Mario Sunshine and Banjo Kazooie are kind of the same kind of game. They are collectathons. Uh, they in- involve going to different worlds and collecting a bunch of stuff and leaving and then going to a new world and stuff. And they have hub worlds and stuff. But um, I will re- routinely replay both of these games. 
when I replay Banjo-Kazooie, I will 100%. I will get everything in the game. When I replay Super Mario Sunshine, I will absolutely not do that. And the reason yeah. is not because of the game itself. It's because of the menus. Um, in Banjo-Kazooie, I can press pause at any time. And uh, it has a brilliant pause menu. It has just like this version of the main theme, which is Banjo and Kazooie's motif uh, playing in the background subtly. And I can go down to totals and just find out which things I'm missing from which worlds. And it, it mm. just works. It's very good. Uh, in, in Super Mario Sunshine, there are 240 blue coins to find in the game. And there is no way to find which ones you're missing. Uh, in fact, there's yeah. no way to find which ones you've found so far. Or even how many you've found so far if you've already redeemed some for uh, Shine Sprites, which they unlike, unlock. Uh, for this way, for, for this reason, I will never 100% uh, Super Mario Sunshine. I'll never do it. Yeah. Because of the simple exclusion of a menus uh, of a totals menu. Otherwise, I would probably yeah. do it. Yeah, that that's that's such a great comparison. Um, and it makes me wonder what you thought of, and and we've touched on this a little bit in a in a previous episode, but what you thought of the menu design in Super Mario Odyssey because that that's an interesting case of. Uh, style and substance meeting in the middle quite well i think yeah i i thought that mario's uh mario odyssey might have even been too much toward substance i kind of wanted a little more style in the menu um yeah i was reminded of of things like super mario 64 where when the game started up uh before you even got to the file select screen you could pull on mario's face and see that jiggle animation and that was new and cool because it was 3d for the first time um mm. and anytime you would press start when you were in the hub you immediately just saw a list of stars and levels that you could scroll through to see what you found so far um yeah and in in odyssey every moon has its own name which is a lot of moons and a lot of names uh, and you can see them through like a map screen that you can go, uh, page, like you can page through, uh, and that's cool and that's useful, but I don't know. There's like a lack of pizzazz in the UI of Super Mario <laughs> Odyssey compared to the actual game, which is so exciting and so characteristic yeah. and so full of personality. Um, yeah, although there is one thing, uh, a little Easter egg. I don't know if you you've heard about this or if you've caught it. Uh, in Super Mario Odyssey, when you go when you press start in the middle of a in the middle of a play session, and you just go through the menu, um, mm. it plays the, like a little sound effect, like one note each for going through a uh, like the options in a menu in Super Mario Odyssey. And it plays the song from the Cosmic Observatory in Super Mario Galaxy once you speed up those menu. Uh, like if you if you record it and then speed it up in post, it'll sound like do 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 do. It's like a weird throwback <laughs> to Galaxy for no reason in the middle of its menu, which is fun, but like why? <laughs> that that's like the ultimate example of Nintendo's attention to detail. I yeah, think. like the fact that they embed stuff that you just. You know that you wouldn't even realize is there until you do some sort of post on it is is pretty insane. Um, yeah, and also just like, I, what is that? What does that say? Like the 
galaxy is menus is that like narratively what it's trying to <laughs> convey i i don't know yeah i don't know i think sometimes because there are there are a few examples actually like that in in different nintendo games um and i think sometimes they must just need a sound effect for something and they dig into their library and pick something they like and you know what i mean mm-hmm. i think sometimes it's just that but um one thing i did want to bring up about menus uh, and it's another comparison. It, it's probably not quite as um, consequential as your example of Banjo-Kazooie and Super Mario Sunshine, but it is something that I've noticed recently. And the comparison is between Breath of the Wild and Monster Hunter World. Oh, okay. Um, Breath of the Wild does something with its menus that I really, really like, which is when you're in the world and you're playing the game, you can essentially hold a direction on the D-pad um, or hold a shoulder button. And depending which direction or which button you hold, uh, a very simple kind of carousel menu will appear that allows you to really, really quickly flick through and change weapons or change shield or whatever. And you're not... Um, you're not taken out of the game for too long. You're not taken to a big complex menu where you have to select an item and then select another option to equip it. You know, they, there's none of that rubbish. It's just really quick and seamless and it works really well. Monster Hunter World does something similar where you hold the L1 button on um, PS4 anyway and you bring up like a, a radial menu that you can you use the right analog stick to scroll your way around and choose an option on that radial menu um now on the one hand that's awesome because you can you know there are a ton of items in monster hunter world you need to access them really quickly in the heat of battle you the last thing you want to be doing is diving into a big complex menu so all good so far but what really annoys me about it is you got to imagine you're holding L1, you're moving the right analog stick around, and the way that you actually confirm that you're going to use one of those items is just to let go of the analog stick. Mm. And that really irritates me because what I've found happening as I'm playing is I can accidentally, you know, especially if I'm, I'm in the middle of a huge battle and I'm panicking as I tend to do, um, I can accidentally click L1. I'm moving my right analog stick because I'm trying to adjust the camera and I can accidentally drink a, like my last potion or whatever without meaning to do it. And aside from the fact I'm using a critical item when I didn't want to, um, the act of like consuming these items forces your character to stand there and consume them, which is a deliberate... Um, you know, it's a deliberate thing. So like when you want to go and drink a potion, you've got to actually think about the timing of when you do it and right. where are you standing? You know, it's a strategic decision. But the way they've implemented this menu means that you can, at least for me, I'm quite often triggering these uh, these animations and using these items when I didn't intend to. And all they had to do was... Um, actually require a button press a specific button press or even you know clicking in the stick or something to actually confirm my selection 
it's such a small thing, but I, I'm really wondering how many people playing Monster Hunter World are having that issue. It's the tiniest thing they could patch, but I think it would make a big difference to how the game feels. Interesting. I... I don't. I feel like they wouldn't patch it. I feel like that's a, a design decision because I've seen that in a lot of places. With uh, Sea of Thieves, does that as well. Um, mm. And if you think about it, the only real difference between that and Breath of the Wild system is that Breath of the Wild system is not a circle, um, because you don't need to press a button in Breath of the Wild's uh, quick equip system, right? That's true. But Breath, the I think the key difference is that. Breath of the Wild pauses your game while you're doing that. And you, I think the carousel design makes it a little bit easier to move between options. Um, does it, I mean, does it pause the game when you is, do the quick equip? I, I didn't think that it did, even though you can do pretty much anything that you can from the quick equip using the uh, pause menu, which does pause the game. I thought it did. We'll have to we'll have to check that after the show. But I think if you hold it down, so if you keep the carousel up, I'm pretty sure it pauses the action. Um, but I mean, the long and short of it anyway is I'm not having that issue. I've never had that issue in Breath of the Wild. Mm-hmm. I'm having that issue quite a bit in Monster Hunter World. So there's something about the way that they've implemented that system that makes it very easy to accidentally you know select something when you're not intending to when you're not explicitly intending to right um yeah so maybe it's just me but i i it's a it's a it's a design decision that i think they've done in an effort to make that selection as quick as possible which makes a lot of sense um but yeah i i've i'm conscious of it now and i consciously try not to do it but now and then I still get caught by it, and I find it very frustrating. So um, I wrote on our little design uh, episode document, menus as mm. places, as something we could potentially talk about, uh, thinking that by today I would have something to talk about in that regard. Um, <laughs> but you've written down near automata question mark next to this bit. Um, what, what do you mean there? Uh, near automata menus as places? Yeah, uh, look, I'm probably stretching the definition of menu, sure. but let um, it stretch. It's it, yeah. Um, so, Near Automata's has this very interesting way of dealing with problems that other games would typically deal with through a menu system. So, for example, in a lot of games, if you are uh, you know, for example, you're hacking into a computer in the game. Usually there's some sort of menu system. There might be a little mini game associated with it, but it's pretty typical that, you know, you're interacting with things in the world through some sort of menu system. What Near Automata does that's really interesting is um, you can you can hack into enemies because the enemies are, are all, you know, robots or androids. Um the player character is an android, so enemies can hack into you. And you can also hack into servers to access information in the game. And the server hacking is probably the most interesting one because um, when you actually hack a server, 
you enter, you physically enter the server. You almost look like a little triangular mouse cursor and you enter this kind of bullet hell type experience. But as you're playing the game later on, when you get a bit further in and you get into much more sophisticated um, server hacking, you get this very strange combination of traditional menu system combined with bullet hell gameplay. So you will actually be moving through like menu categories and subcategories like the dropdowns you mentioned, but those menu components become almost like gameplay levels that you're moving through. And it's just a, it's a really elaborate and fascinating way of handling something that they could easily have just said, you know, we're just going to create a really pretty menu for this and that's all we need. That they just absolutely went to the nth degree and created these menus as physical places that you navigate through. That's cool. Um, which I which I found really amazing. Well, that's game menus. <laughs> and that's this episode. <laughs> uh, we hope that you've gotten something out of that. <laughs> I, I think I definitely did. Menus are interesting and important. Now, if you want to write into the show, have your uh, have your question or comment read on the show by one of us, you can do so at podcast at superjump.online. Again, that's podcast at superjump.online. Now, at the end of every episode, we like to uh, give some after-school activities. Uh, these are recommendations for what you can check out, what you can do between episodes of the Super Jump podcast, because we do only come out every two weeks. Um, I'll start. HEDQ uh, 2018 was last month, and now all of the runs from that marathon have been uploaded to YouTube. Uh, so you should go check those out. Uh, in particular, if I was to recommend one of them above others... I would recommend the AGDQ Super Mario Sunshine Run by Average Trey. Like I was saying earlier, I will never 100% this game. But Average Trey actually manages to get all 120 Shine Sprites. That's all of the regular Shine Sprites plus all 240 uh, Blue Coins within three hours. And it's a really interesting, uh, it's a really, really interesting run. The couch uh, commentators are fantastic and they... they, uh, provide a lot of insight as to what's actually going on and what average Trey is actually doing in order to make it through the game as fast as he does. So I definitely re- recommend you, uh, you check that out. Yeah, I'm definitely going to look at that. Super Mario Sunshine has always struck me as a game that um, would be difficult to speed run. So I'm really fascinated by that. I'm going to have a look. Yeah, Sunshine runs are really interesting. The movement yeah. provides a lot of... Uh, different options yeah cool uh so my recommendation is it's it's a specific video so we're going to try and um for both of these videos we're going to try and put the links in our podcast show notes and we'll put them in the the super jump article that's associated with this episode as well um my, my recommendation is for a channel called Lazy Game Reviews. Um, it's yet another channel that tends to look at kind of retro stuff. But one video in particular stood out to me recently. Um, they did a video on Need for Speed. And 
particularly kind of the first couple of Need for Speed games that came out back in the 90s. Um, it's I think it's worth watching even if you don't play any of the modern Need for Speed games. Like I, I kind of fell off this franchise ages ago, but the first couple of games are really, really interesting because they're sort of like, um, at least in my memory of them, they're sort of like the first racing games that came out that really celebrated car culture as well as just racing if that makes sense right. um i remember playing um need for speed i had to go and visit a friend's house because when this game came out we didn't have a computer at home um my friend had a really super fast <laughs> i don't know what it was probably a 486 or something um he, he had this really whiz-bang computer. And so whenever I possibly could, I would score an invite to his place and we would play Need for Speed and we would watch the, the different car videos. And um, it just amazed me back then. I have really good memories of it. And this, this video is really interesting because it kind of dives into, um, I guess, the importance of these games and the legacy they have. Um, so yeah, definitely worth checking out. So is whiz bang a word people say? Cause it's really good <laughs> and I like it's... it a lot. Thank you. Um, I'm now going to take credit for having introduced that term to America. <laughs> uh, let, let it be known from here on. Sure. I'm it, it's a word. It. It's a word people use here, but probably not really young, cool people. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's more like. My grandparents might have said, hey, that's a really cool whiz-bang camera. <laughs> um, uh, that's all right. I'll cop to that. That's okay. Fantastic. Uh, so you can check that out in the, <laughs> the link in the show notes as well. The theme song for this podcast, and it looks like our theme song going forward, uh, is and will be Battle Against a Clueless Foe by Shane Meza from off of the Mother 4 soundtrack, which... Uh, he has licensed to creative commons so thank you very much for your indirect permission to use that song as our theme song we really love it and i'm excited for mother four when that finally comes out it seems soon but it seems soon for a while that didn't mean to be a slight against you or the mother four development team i've just been thinking about it for a really long time so uh so if you want you can subscribe to us uh please 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 review us on itunes if you can do that that'll mean the world to us that's a huge difference and uh and tell a friend about the show if you want to so we'll jump at you next time stay super